0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. We talked about the Book of James, and we finished up on Chapter 3. You'll recall that we had the uh, map of the diaspora up here, the dispersion, and we talked about how the... uh, Uh, God's people in Jerusalem had fled. You recall that the apostles stayed behind initially in Jerusalem, but God's people had spread throughout Asia Minor and then eventually over into Greece and and various places. We don't have the map up today. But we had talked about the dispersion of God's people due to persecution in Jerusalem. And in doing so, recall how many Canadian immigrants fled countries filled with conflict in search of better ways of life. In fact, that's how much of Canada has been settled over time. Ireland, the Irish people fled uh, uh, famine. There was was food uh, food shortages that they they fled. That's just giving one example. We know all about the the history of of, uh, Europe in the 30s and the 40s and why many fled to North America. Initial arrivals can be very stressful on people when they flee to other, other places, both from in terms of language, terms of culture, trying to fit in culturally, terms of finding employment, finding income, competition for jobs. The scattering of God's people, you recall, was not new to the times of the apostles and the early testament church. God's people, as we talked about, more often than not, seem to be on the move when we read scripture. Sometimes it's self inflicted, sometimes it's God ordained. We recall the Lost Ten Tribes, various empires, the Maccabean Revolt, those sorts of things, just in reviewing where we were last time. In context, when we consider this, these are when we consider the book of James, when we consider the general epistles, James, Peter, John, Jude, they're sometimes, they're, we sometimes scan over them when we refer to them as general epistles. When we go through the Pauline epistles, Paul had specific reasons that he wrote these for. There were issues in Corinth, there were issues in Galatia, there were issues in Ephesus, there was a trying to encourage the good church in Philippi to be even better and address a little bit of a conflict that was there. The some of the pastoral epistles were to encourage and teach Timothy and Titus in their, in their ministry. The general epistles have this sort of this word general that just sort of means it's just to all the church. And we can read through it and sometimes we, they're obviously God ordained, but we sometimes miss the real purpose when we don't dig into the context, which is what we started to do last time. And we noted both in James and Peter, first Peter, that in their introductions, it was to the dispersed the dispersed, the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad according to James. when you read First Peter, he specifies where they went to, the various Cappadocia and the various places. And we recall in examining the history that it was persecution that drove them to leave their homes in Jerusalem for safer futures. And these were not, as we saw, these were not peaceful times that James and Peter were writing in. Gone were the times we read, we referred to back in Acts 2, after the first Pentecost, when 3,000 were baptized, gave their lives to God. And they, they ate together, and they, they studied together, and they prayed together, and there was this great time of great peace amongst God's people. God, those times were gone. The church was well past these peaceful, happy times. We, when we dug into James, we saw that he was written around the mid-40s A.D. He was the brother of Jesus Christ. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the one who penned the decision on circumcision in Acts 15. And we got through the first three chapters. Let's go to James chapter 1 and verse 2 to get the context of the book of James. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And when we study this, we study this to look at how to cope with trials in life. But when we dig into this and see that it is directly connected to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. And we see that that the, this theme, the, the the gist behind the book of James, and we notice how he wrote this, that it is when, not if, there will be trials. This was, wasn't, if you happen to find yourself in times of trials, this is what you should do. What James is saying here, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So there is an assumption and then a, a a, an assumption here and an, a, an understanding, more than an assumption, an understanding that we will fall into very into trial, period of trials. Here specifically to the, the the dispersion, God's people who were scattered abroad, when you fall into these trials, here is what you should do, and then James proceeds to go through this letter, this general epistle, that is going out to the to all the churches. That when you fall into trial, here's what you need to do. What happens when 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 we fall into trials? This is what James now pens. Keep focused on this. This has made all the more impactful remembering that James was martyred not long after he wrote this. So he lived what he wrote. He stayed true to the, the text of what he wrote. And just for... To recap the first three chapters that we talked about last time, once there was an an understanding that when you fall into trial, that there's an understanding that that these people will fall into trial, the rest of the letter becomes, what should we do? How should we behave? What should our actions look like? What should we do? Understanding that we will fall into periods of trial. You go through chapter one, we looked at very, the very first thing was to ask God for wisdom and faith. Why? To guide our behavior. So from the outset, this was made clear by James. We will fall into trial, and then what we need to do is to stay close to God and understand, remind ourselves, what our behavior must be while we're in the midst of these trials and this persecution. And we do so by asking God for wisdom. Wisdom is applied knowledge by his Holy Spirit. We can have all the knowledge in the world, but if we don't have his Holy Spirit to guide it, our behavior is, is, it does not match up with our belief system. That is the first point that James addresses that we talked about last time. He then goes on to talk about remaining unified with the brethren. This is not, this is not a journey we walk alone, that we should walk alone. We must remain unified with the brethren. Not to let outside influences destroy our unity. Amongst the brethren. Continuing, just as a recap, we saw not to blame God for our hardships, understanding that we are in the midst of trial, but we are not to blame God for them. And then finalizing chapter one, the need to be righteous, not to appear righteous, not to look righteous from the outside, but to be righteous. Chapter two. Just to uh, welcome to to our guests, what we are doing is we're just in the midst of we're just uh, started a Bible study uh, and we're just recapping where we were last time. We had gotten through the first three chapters of James, and we're just reviewing that now. Chapter two. Again, keeping in mind this whole context is when you fall into trial, you will fall into trial, and therefore, when you do, what should your behavior be? What do we need to keep front 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 of mind? That faith and works go together. It is not an either-or concept. Our actions reflect our faith. Our actions reflect our belief system. Our actions reflect our doctrinal beliefs. That's the gist of what we call chapter 2. We know that it was a letter with no chapter breaks, but in that section, it was a faith and works, not a faith or works. Chapter 3 talked about controlling our tongue. Controlling our tongue. This is, the, this is the weapon that we have. It's also a tool. And what we saw was we control our tongue in what we teach. Again, reflecting back to what we just read in the previous chapter about how our actions reflect our belief system. We must, therefore, be true to what we teach. And then, additionally, how we talk and interact with one another. Again, bringing our actions... And how we love the brethren, and how we, st- how we be unified into our behavior and linking that to our belief system and, and our, our belief in doctrine. So as we continue through the book of James, remember as we're walking through this, this isn't just a general epistle on how to behave or what to do. This, this rubber meets the road type of epistle. This is done in the midst of extreme persecution. This is when James was writing. This is why James was writing. This is all in the context of God's people being exhorted to remain committed to God, to Christ, and to each other in the midst of these extreme trials and persecutions that they were suffering at the hands of Rome. So now let's dive into chapter 4, where we left off, James chapter 4, and continue this look at what James was reminding the people of the New Testament church on how to behave, how to act in the midst of trial Persecution. Verse 1. We'll read uh, initially here verses 1 through 6. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore, he says, God, gives, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we look at this section, keep in mind this is to the church. This is not a statement about war per se. This is about conflict within the body. Where do wars and fights come from among you? It's an almost rhetorical question because it, there should be no wars and fights amongst the brethren. This is part and parcel of what he's been saying from the, from verse 1. Maintaining unity among the brethren, looking after each other, doing what we need to do to protect the brethren. But understanding that Satan is there and he's he doesn't like unity amongst the brethren he does not like when god's people are happy and motivated and and headed towards his king god's kingdom so he's right there waiting for strife amongst the brethren and an understanding where it comes from what james is trying to do here is to remind us where it comes from but it is specifically to the brethren in the entire body of christ let's go to hold your place there let's go to first john three and consider strife amongst the brethren, which is what James is addressing here. And recall the theme of some of Pastor Adrian's previous sermons and Bible studies these last few weeks. 1 John chapter 3. And we see that John here addresses this same subject that James is addressing. So it was prevalent amongst God's people in the New Testament church, once they got past the the honeymoon period of the first Pentecost, where everything was happy and people were gathering and studying and eating and supporting each other financially, doing whatever we needed to do. Once we got past that honeymoon, we see this conflict that the apostles continued to address. 1 John 3, we'll just touch on a couple of verses here, verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son... Oh, that's chapter 4, sorry for that. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. And we recall this the message that we heard a couple of weeks ago. We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. A direct teaching from Jesus Christ. By this shall all men know that you have love for one another. And again, it's defining what that love is and how we keep that love. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And we, and we, God's apostles here, the writers of his scripture, continue to hammer away at this. There is only two ways about this. There is agape, there is God's way, or there's not God's way. There's not part pregnant, half in, half out, one foot in, one foot out of the kingdom. There is either agape to all the brethren, or we're on our way to death. Right here from the apostle of love here, John. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Our love for the brethren tells God where our hearts are, how much what we believe. Do we believe in his his truth? We show that belief by our love for the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Where does conflict arise between the brethren is what James is asking by not keeping the 10 commandments by not keeping the 10 commandments let's go back to James and see and see this Let's read this again. You lust and do not have. It's commandment 10. You murder and covet. There's commandment 6 and commandment 10. You fight and war, yet you ask not, you have not, because you do not ask. That's right back to Matthew 7, when we read, ask and you shall, seek and you shall find, ask and it shall be opened unto you. That is not, as we've talked about many, many times, that has nothing to do with physical prosperity. Just ask, and God owes you physical prosperity because you ask. Here, you ask, and you do not receive because you ask amiss. It is not enough to ask. We must ask for the right things. And what, what John is, or James here is pointing us to is the agape love for the brethren. showing the, the, Having the, the love for the brethren that is built upon resting on the keeping of God's law. Lust, murder, adultery, and self-love is what we see in these first six verses, all pointing right back to the Decalogue. Again, asking amiss for your own pleasure, keeping in mind when we ask for things, it must be for God's will, and we'll get to that a little bit. James covers that a little bit later. So again, keeping your place here, let's look into this love for God and what what really is based around. Let's go to 1 John, back to 1 John chapter 5. And as we've talked about before, often these religious words, like love, have been hijacked by those who teach it wrong. And it is, such an, it is the key, as we've heard these last many, many weeks, these last few weeks in, in Bible studies and messages and on the weekly Bible studies, it is about agape love. So let's find out what agape love is and continue, as we, as we do together, dig into this. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know, remember right back in chapter, where we just were, chapter 3, we know we have passed from death to life because we have love for the brethren. John continues this theme. By this we know that we love the children of God. So when we love the children of God, we know that we have passed from death to life. How do we know all this? By keeping his commandments. So again, behavior believe, uh, Behavior is reflected in our belief system. Our belief system is reflected in our behavior. For this is the love of God. This is agape, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not a list of don'ts. Don't do this. What i got to remember. i got to not do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. When we read what Christ wrote, and really what the apostles have done here, the writers here, I've gone right back and just expounded on the teachings of Christ from the Gospels. That's what, that's what they have done. And we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You recall that Christ explained the law. He said it is not that you shall not murder. It's that you shall not hate. It's not that you shall not lie. It's about building trust. It's not that you shall not commit adultery. It's about having fidelity in your relationships with God and with, with your family, with your spouse. It's much deeper than a list of don'ts. It is a list of what to do, because our actions guide our belief system. Let's go back to Matthew 22. So the love of God is foundational upon the keeping of the commandments. And again, both John and James and the rest of the writers are simply expounding upon the teachings of Christ. And in Matthew 22, we see that here. We'll pick it up in verse 37. Jesus said to him, again, the, talking about the greatest commandment when he was asked that question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we consider that love, real, true, agape love, and our practice and understanding of that is reflected and is based on the keeping of the commandments. And then we see here what Christ said here, and that rather than this list of don'ts, as some try to convey what the Ten Commandments are. We see that they are a list of do's. Here's the list of how to love God properly, how to have an agape relationship with God, and then here's the list of how to have an agape relationship with your fellow man. So, life eternal, guaranteed by our love for God and our love for fellow man, hanging on the Ten Commandments we can see how James really is just breaking this down for us here. Let's go back to James 5, James 4. So, as he is writing to God's people in the midst of them fleeing, trying to set up other, better lives for themselves in the midst of all that they are going through and being persecuted by, he goes right back to the law of God. And trying to connect what he's trying to say about loving the brethren with the keeping of the commandments. And how do we, how do we keep these commandments? Verse 7. Therefore, based on every, what he's just said, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So this isn't some battle between God and Satan. All we have to do is draw near to God, and Satan will flee. There is, there is an easy answer here. Stay close to God. This is not, as you recall, TV shows or thing where you've got the battle between the good angel and the, and, and the demon, or God and Satan uh, having a, a gambling game over the souls of the, of the people. All we have to do is stay close to God. Submit to God, Satan will flee. Obey God, Satan will flee. Follow God, and we will be able to su- submit to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sin is the, the coming together of thought and action. We can have thought. But we are to resist that thought. When thought connects with, with action, that is when we sin. When we allow our actions, we follow through on thoughts. We don't resist Satan. We succumb to Satan. and We allow our actions to reflect those thoughts. That is when we sin. That's why here it is a two-part equation here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Watch your actions and purify your hearts. Thoughts and action lead to sin. Again, all in the backdrop of this trial and persecution that God's people are going through. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. How do we follow through on agape? How do we love the brethren? We do so by keeping the commandments. We start with keeping the commandments. And understanding that the commandments are a whole lot deeper than a list of don'ts as Christ expounded for us. And how do we start? We start by submitting humbly to God and following Him, asking Him to act, to give us His Holy Spirit, to give us the courage and the strength to follow through on what we know to be our actions that we need to do. Verse 11. In light of all of this, again, building on this subject of agape, do not speak evil of one another Brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? There's a couple of concepts here that James talks about here. Let's look at the first one here. Do not speak evil of one another. Brethren, he who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Let's go to Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1. We talked about what John said, that we know we have passed from death to life because of our love for the brother. This is a concept that the New Testament writers hinged on here. And we see this in Jude. We'll pick it up in verse 8. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. So Michael the archangel refused to, to say a bad word about about Satan. If there's anybody we could say something bad about. I think we're safe in saying a, an accusation against Satan. I, it would seem to me we would be safe. But here, at this point, someone higher in power and authority than ourselves, Michael, refused to bring an accusation against Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So simply by bringing an accusation against Satan, we corrupt ourselves. How much more would we corrupt ourselves by making false accusations or any kind of accusations against the brethren? When we consider all that we've read about how to treat the brethren... Talking slanderously about any member of the body of Christ shows God where our hearts are. And we must not, we cannot, anybody within the body of Christ speak evil of the brethren. That goes against any of the hard work you've done to try to become more agape-like and more Christ-like. And here, James talks about that right away. Linking agape, he talks about agape, linking it through to the commandment-keeping, and then immediately talks about how how when we speak about one another amongst the body of Christ. The second thing James talks about here is this concept of judging. Now, we've studied this a few times over the last last number of years here on the, the concept of judging. But it bears repeating, just for briefly, this concept, this English word, judging. Because we can go to scriptures that say judge. We can go to scriptures that say don't judge. And because the English language has sort of taken this word and not defined it, it's important that we go back and have a look at this. Because it's important to understand when to judge and when not to judge. Let's go to Matthew 7. Because James talks about judging and making sure we do not judge in the wrong way. So Matthew 7. again, there's a much longer study here, but we'll just briefly just hit some highlights here of this word judge. Judge not, verse 1, that you, not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then he continues to follow through on this concept of trying to pull a speck out of your brother's eye while your eye has this plank within it. This root word for judge that is used here is the word krino, and it is a final declaration, a decree, or a decision. Generally, this is God's purview. God has the right to krino, because and what we'll see later is, as Christ says, His he follows. His judgments are 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 righteous because he follows in the will of his Father. We'll see that scripture in a little bit. We. When we become members of the God family, we will be given tasks associated with this final t- final judgment type of crino. Additionally, in some few cases on this earth, in a limited use for us in this world, those in terms of uh, in positions of leadership do require that action be taken that is san- that is sanctioned by God under this type of crino. But it is limited, and it is for those in pos- in positions of authority, whether it be uh, people in the authority in this world or authority within the church in a limited use. But generally this concept of crino is a final decisive declaration by God that belongs to him. First Corinthians eleven, the same English word judge, but not the same Greek word. First Corinthians eleven Verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Sounds confusing, but when you consider there's two different Greek words here. The first one, for if we would judge ourselves, is the word diakrino. And this is discernment from right and wrong. So if we were to self-assess and discern our actions based on this concept of right and wrong... God will not be put in the pit. We will not put God in the position of having to crino us and have some final determination of eternal death. We discern from right and wrong, diacrino, We judge. We judge from that perspective, so that we do not put God in a position of having to crino. First Corinthians two, back a couple of verses, is the third Greek word for judge. And we can review that at some point in the future that in more detail, this message on judging. We did it a couple of years ago at a Feast Bible study and then some years before. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 2. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. And this anacrino has to do with self-analysis to separate ourselves from sin. So, diacrino, looking out and discerning what is, what is outside of ourselves, right and wrong. Anacrino, self-analysis to separate oneself from sin. So that we do not put God in a position of having to declare a final declaration from a, a concept of, of final judgment, as we see here with this word crino. So when we go back to James, that's just a, a quick highlight of the importance of diving into some of these English words that are translated here in Scripture here as to where the writers came from. We see here this concept of, on the, on the heels of not speaking evil and slant, not slandering one another, this concept of not judging one another. And this here is the word crino that is being used here. James is warning us that it is outside of our purview, as members together, in non-authoritative positions, non-leadership positions, to crino one another. That's beyond our scope. Our scope is to discern right from wrong and to keep ourselves separate from sin, diacrino and anacrino. But crino is beyond our purview. So in the midst of persecution, we must look to build and edify the body and leave those tasks that belong to God to Him. Our job is to build. Our job is to Foster agape, to foster edification, to build the body. Crinoing, when it's not our job, destroys the body. Diacrino and anacrino, discernment, keeping ourselves separate from sin, that is part of agape. And that is where our our jurisdiction comes in. So we must always look at what James is really here is getting to, is looking to build and edify the body. Verse 13 Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, who will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. This seems like a semantics when we read this. That tomorrow we're going to do this. We all have dreams. When, we, when people have come to Canada from foreign lands based on whatever is going on in your homeland, we have dreams. We want to build a better life. These folks here that fled Jerusalem, they had these same dreams. That... We will go and make a better life for ourselves. We will make life a little bit more comfortable for ourselves. Well, it seems like semantics, James is really getting at the heart of the matter that it is not about this life that we must be worried, that we must be focused on. Therefore, we must always follow and cede to God's will. Submit ourselves to God's will. Right back in verse 7, submit to God. Whether we do that, whether he's talking about that here in commandment keeping, or extending that into how we build our lives when, when we are in the midst of this persecution, and 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 these people have fled for better lives. He's saying here, never forget we're to follow the will of God. Let's go back to John four. Hold your place there and go back to John four. And see again that really what James was doing was simply reminding everybody of the teachings of Jesus Christ. This wasn't anything new. This is why James is is. T- is is tagged here with this rubber meets the road, a basic epistle, just real basic concepts. Really, all he was doing was reminding people that in the face of these trials and persecution, to get back to basics and not forget the very basics here, to follow the teachings of Christ. John 4 is where we'll look here, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Christ was fueled fueled simply by the will of God. That is what gave him purpose, that is what gave him energy, that is what gave his day and his time meaning while he was here on this earth. He wasn't here to build a better life for himself, to build riches to to bring glory upon himself. Everything he did, everything that he consumed, that he that fueled him, that from his moment that he woke to the moment he slept was to do the will of God and when we go back to James that is essentially all that James was saying here that you may say these things I would like to go do this and we're going to go do this and we're going to make our lives over here do this in terms of if this is God's will because it is easy and we've got Thousands of years of history here to show that God's people, once they were on a bit of a high, forgot who was responsible for the peace, who was responsible for their lifestyle. And then they would dive into sin, and then they would crash, and then reach out to God in their, in their, in their grief, and God would have to rescue them again. It's not semantics here for James to say, Live as good a life as you can here on this earth, but do it according to God's will. And never forget that it is always God's will. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if it's God's will, we will do this. But if it's God's will we won't, that we don't do it, we won't do it. And this theme rolls right into chapter 5. Again, there are no chapter breaks when James wrote this letter, so it makes sense that it rolls right into the next part of the text. Because being scattered or persecuted should not change our focus in following God's will. Whether we are living in times of peace, as we are now, as they were after the first Pentecost, or whether, as they did, we find ourselves living in not-so-peaceful times, living in times that lead up to the return of Christ that we read about in the book of Revelation. The next life, not this one, should be our focus. And James continues that reminder in these basic, basic teachings, all in the backdrop of this this concept of persecution here in chapter 5 and in verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. This calls to mind the teaching of Christ back in Matthew 6, which is where we'll go before we make some comments here. Matthew 6. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And James is simply reminding God's people in the midst of these trials not to forget that while they have fled the persecution, and while it will be nice if they could have a bit of a better life, that is not what it's about. Not to lay up, or not to have dreams that override our dreams of eternal life. It is okay to have dreams. It is okay to build. Scripture tells us, you can go through Proverbs 6, you can go through Ecclesiastes. It is okay to build. There is a time to build. But not to override the building of agape, the building of character, the building of the unity of the brethren. Not to override that. The worse the world becomes the more we are asked to compromise and the less likely that we can can succeed in this world's eyes by doing things God's way. And if you go through the history of what Rome did and all that they, some of these guilds that they they did and they they people's people's livelihoods were based on following Rome. And you can we don't have time to dig into some of that history, but we we we've, we've heard messages, we've read stuff ourselves on that. The more the world degrades, the more it will be impossible to succeed in the world's eyes because we will be forced to compromise. We haven't got there yet. We live nice, generally comfortable lives here in, in our part of the world. But James is reminding them here, riches in this life should not override riches in heaven, riches in eternal life. Success by this world's terms will force us to sell out eventually or to completely resist and turn our back on the world. Success by this world's terms. But while while it is time to build, we we must build. So again, this backdrop of this persecution that was going on and James breaking down the simple teachings of Christ to remind the the church of God here the body of Christ how to act in this we now come to this topic of patience therefore as he's winding down this letter based on everything we've just read we covered we reviewed chapters 1 through 3 at the beginning of this study we see here what we've talked about in chapter 4 and 5 therefore in light of all of this understanding that there will be persecution Understanding that we will be forced to make choices. Understanding that at the heart of it, all we really need to do is to simply follow the basic teachings of Christ that we have been studying all of our lives. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's an interesting piece of context. Because what he is saying is, while we may want relief in this life, we need to plan that it never comes. We must be patient until the return of Christ. We may get temporary relief. We may never be persecuted the way they were. But all of us must remain patient and persevere until the coming of Jesus Christ. And what he does here is he uses three tangible, practical examples that these folks would completely understand. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. It was an agrarian society. They knew you didn't forget to plant, and all of a sudden, with two weeks left in the, in the growing season, go, I might better get this stuff in. Let's get this in real quick and hope that we get, we, we, we get some harvest. It takes time. It takes time, ma- making our time commitments to what, what, what is required, doing all that is required in terms of planting, sowing, watering, weeding, All of those sorts of things. And it is a long process. Waiting patiently for it until you receive the early and the latter rain. Doing what you can control while you wait for things that are out of your control. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren. Again, tying all of these concepts in. These are simple, basic concepts. But in the face of persecution... That's when we tend to forget. God's people have always tended to forget in the face of persecution. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he talked about the farming process. He now tells us, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the person. Okay, before we get to there, we talk about the, he talks about the prophets. You recall some years ago we dove into this concept of patience of the prophets, and when you go through all of the prophets, you see how many decades they preached and preached and preached. Isaiah, Hosea, they were 40 years. Jeremiah was somewhere around 30, and you you see that by when they list the number of kings that they that they spoke that they prophesied during their the reigns of the kings, and we see how many people listened. There were relatively very few that heard. But that didn't take them away from their, their God-given commitment and their God-given job, was to continue to preach. That took a lot of patience. So as much as it takes a farmer lots, a lot of patience to, to do what must be done through the growing season, it took the prophets a lot of patience to continue to do what God had them to do for decades and decades and decades. It continues in verse 11. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So these three tangible, practical examples of the farmer, the prophets, and Job. Let's go to Hebrews 12. We studied in depth the book of Hebrews a couple of years ago. And recall that this is also a, an epistle of sorts to scattered brethren. This specifically were to the scattered Hebrews that were contemplating going back to Judaism to escape their troubled times. Verse 1 through 3 of chapter 12, again, all that we studied about Hebrews, the the preceding chapters, and then seeing these, these examples of faith of those who were persecuted and stayed the course. Therefore, verse 1, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Again, under the context of persecution, patience until the return of Christ. It may take that long for us to be relieved of trial and persecution, but it will come. And we have a cloud of witnesses here for us to cling to. Let's go down to verse 13 as we just pick up the pace here a little bit to finish off the book of James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He then gives an example of Elijah. Again, a a certified example from Scripture that they would know of someone who prayed and his prayers were answered. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature much like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here, as he's winding down, he's reminding them to do specific things that spiritually edify the brethren. Rather than tear down, rather than slander, rather than judge where it's not our purview, rather than, than seek riches on the backs of the brethren, we, 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 when we walk through that part of it we didn't touch on that, but we noticed how the wages of the laborers they cried out because they were they, the God's people were making money on the, the backs of people and they were not equally compensating them properly and becoming rich off the backs of of members of the, of, the, of the faith. We are to do things that specifically spiritually edify the flock. That means pray. that means singing psalms. That means comforting. That means praying for one another, praying for healing, praying for spiritual healing, not just the physical healing, but spiritual healing. Tangible examples of answered prayer by someone who is just like us. Again, reflecting back onto this, this crowd of witnesses that speak to us from Scripture, like Elijah. And remembering that these were just men but men who followed through on their commitment to God and their commitment to the brethren. Then we come to the conclusion, verse 19 and 20. An odd conclusion if you've ever read any of the epistles. It just sort of stops. There's no um, greetings from other brethren. There's no take care of this fellow or, or watch this. He simply says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. An odd ending where the letter just sort of stops. But it goes to the practicality of his letter. There's no final greeting. There's no poetic conclusion. There's no deep doctrinal discovery. This is simply basic foundational truths in light of, of a persecution, a time of persecution. And it summarizes, really what these last two verses do, they summarize the entire letter. Because you are in the midst of extreme persecution, your responsibility is to look after one another, plain and simple. Just look after one another. If you see someone going away, it's your job to go and bring them back and focus them on truth and focus them on agape and focus them on the way of God. And we see that, Jude 11, just quickly. We were in Jude already, but we see these general epistles sort of tying all together. We read verses 8 to 10. Woe to them, continue verse 11, for they have gone in the way of Cain. What was the way of Cain? You don't need to turn there. You'll recall Genesis 4, verse 9. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And James finishes with that by saying, If anyone among you wanders from the truth, go get him back. That is our job. That's how we show agape. That is how we show love for the brethren. That is how we show unity. That is how we keep the commandments. It's by taking care of the brethren. It is not this life that matters. It is the next life. Saving a soul from death has nothing to do with saving a physical soul from the persecution that they are being inflicted upon at at the time of this writing. It is about saving a soul from eternal death. When we come to the end of the book of James, we see that, yes, it's a general epistle to all of the body of Christ. Yes, it's basic. And as we are living in times of peace, it all seems kind of basic. We just go there. We go to a book like James and we look about patience. We look about trials. We look about faith and works. And it helps build the defense of our our doctrinal doctrinal beliefs. But when we're in times of persecution, when these people were fleeing for their lives and trying to establish whatever they could, wherever they could go, we can see the importance of just getting back to basics and getting back to the teachings of Christ. It's got a couple of minutes here. Let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, all James was doing was reminding everybody what his brother taught them years ago when he walked this earth. Verse 9, again, understanding where we are in this Olivet prophecy about coming tribulation. We won't take time to get into all that. Let's just look at verse 9, verse 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, and will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Tribulation, false doctrine, lawlessness, love for the brethren. That's all James was reminding us about. Was that in the face of this persecution, which Christ said will come, don't forget what he also said stay true to doctrine, keep God's law, and love the brethren. And when we pull in some of these examples of all of these other apostles and these writers of the epistles, we see that it's all one basic concept of agape. The world has sort of stolen this word love, but they don't explain what it really is. Unity of the brethren, following the law, keeping the commandments, taking care of one another. That's what agape is all about, and that's what we've been hearing for these last number of weeks and months. Again, we know James to be a practical letter expounding on the teachings of Christ. But it is not simple enough to just say he was, it's a general epistle, that he was a practical writer. The times were extremely hard, and this was not the time for deep, as we said last time, for deep intellectual revelations. This was, my life's on the line here, and it's either my physical life or my spiritual life. What do I need to do to protect my spiritual life? And that is simply follow the teachings of Christ and get back to basics and help each other, remind each other to do that. When we consider our core values of care, courtesy, and consideration, it becomes ever the more important to understand how to put them into practice in light of facing persecution. And it's now in times of peace that we practice that together so that when should those times come upon us, while we are alive on this earth, we can remind each other and help each other through and keep each other on course. To fully grasp the messages from these general epistles, we must consider context, and that context is in the scattering of God's people in light of persecution. James' message was simple: it was now, it was now that all of our studies and training are put into action. All those times they gathered after Pentecost to to eat together and study together and pray together and encourage one another and help each other through. While it was easy, now was the time to put that into practice when it was hard. Not to make the troubles go away, but to help us endure to the end. Just do what you know to be right, and do not compromise one little bit, is the message of James here. And the same can be said for the, the rest of the general epistles. They were not meant to address doctrinal issues in specific congregations, like some of the Pauline epistles but to strengthen the entire body of Christ during its most difficult times questions time for a little bit of Q&A based on the last couple of studies brother ray has the microphone Good afternoon, brethren. Um, what does it mean to ask a miss? So let's go to, let's go read it. Because it, it, James answers it for us. And that's the beauty of James. James is such a practical guy. He doesn't leave anything up for interpretation. I believe that was in James 4. Let's read it again. So where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So again, self-seeking rather than seeking God and his ways. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. So they had, they had fled. We talked about how they had fled. They had fled persecution. And they were expecting God to protect them, much like, Too often, God's people did. We're your people. We deserve protection. And God was saying, but you're not acting like my people. You're breaking all my commandments. You're not treating the brethren right. You're not loving each other. You're asking for things, and you're asking amiss. You're asking, and then you're not acting in in conjunction with with each other. You ask. Let's continue here and see how he answers this. You, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. He defines it there. When we ask for things, and we go back to Matthew 7. Now that was really, I should have gone there, I referenced it. But let's go back to Matthew, I think it's 6 actually. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. We see this in context. This has nothing to do with, God, I'm going to stay true to you so you can bless me, bless me, bless me. Because the rest of this is really Christ explaining his basic teachings as he's about to start his ministry. And these were concepts to these, these Jews that they didn't understand. They had spent their whole life trying to earn things, and Christ was trying to explain his basic teachings. And what he was saying here is, you're going to need to understand Ask, and it will be shown to you. Seek, and you will find the answers. So again, much of this concept is trying to get us away from asking for physical blessings for the sake of being able to feel good about ourselves and be peaceful and not have trials, and is really to seek to do God's pleasure. And James sort of answers that himself there. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.